It's Friday, June the 5th, and it's Compass's birthday, by the way. And you can actually hear some Compass construction going on outside as we continue to expand into a new building here on campus. And we've got uh, CBI underway, but uh, hopefully that won't bother you, the jackhammers, as we continue our study through 2 Peter chapter 3. And so let's look at the passage. You'll remember the scoffers now are in view and they're scoffing and saying, the Lord's not going to come back. And what are you guys thinking? And this is a dumb hope for you to have. And we saw here some of the things that should be the logic about remembering that God can step into time and space and do whatever he'd like to do. And he promised and he's going to get it done. Verse number eight is our verse for the day. As we think about, I guess we should at least touch on verse seven where it talks about the fact that this present order of things is being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not, now he directly speaks to his audience, do not overlook this one fact. And remember, that's what we've been talking about here in the context. People are overlooking things they should not overlook. He says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Now, of course, because the Spirit of God is utilizing Peter to write a book that would be around now for 2,000 years, instructing Christians in every subsequent generation, this was the perfect phrase for him to use, and yet uh, you got to think from a human perspective, Peter had no idea. I mean, I would think he would think that Christ was coming back soon in his lifetime, if not in his lifetime, soon after, and yet now it has been 2,000 years, which, again, if you want to look at this passage, like two days to the Lord, not a big deal. And then we're going to look at why the delay in verse number 9. But here's our verse for the day, verse number 8, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. And I want to think a little bit about overlooking things. We talk about the deliberate overlooking of the scoffers, but I want to talk about maybe even the passive overlooking of God's truth and not thinking of it as we ought to. And I just want to show you from Psalm 50, that is the characteristic that we see so often, starting in the in the Law of Moses and back in Deuteronomy, the characteristic of the, of the false teachers and the uh, the sinful and the wicked and those who don't do what they ought to do, they're not faithful and loyal to God, they forget, which is what this passage is about. If you look here in verse 22, uh, mark this, then you forget God. But here's the thing that affects them, uh, whether they're going to be a false teacher trying to persuade Christians or whether they're just going to live the life they want to. Verse 19 says, you give your, your mouth free reign for evil. Your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. See, and that is what opens up opportunities for people to criticize and scoff God. Where is God in all this? Where is God? Where is God? We hear it today. Where is God in all of this? And God, as we're going to see the logic of verse 9 of 2 Peter chapter 3, we're going to be very grateful for his silence and for the way that he does not bring immediate judgment. There's grace in all of that. We'll see that tomorrow or Monday. He says, and you thought I was... Uh, one like yourself. You thought I was just kind of the same kind of person that you are, and that's not the case at all. But he says, now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this, then you who, here's the characteristic of the sinners, who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The, the Bible is very clear. The judgment of God is coming. The silence of God 
right now is something that opens up opportunities for the mockers and we have that and it becomes then a test of our faith. And I want us to look back at why we should trust God no matter what because God is faithful, therefore we ought to put our faith in him. He is trustworthy, therefore we ought to trust him. He's proven it in the past, he's made a promise, it's dangling out there now for 2,000 years and we should never doubt it. Let me take you to a great passage of scripture here, Hebrews chapter 6 verse 13, uh, when God made a promise, and again we're looking at his track record, which is really, really good. It's, he's batting 1,000% on all of his uh, promises. Uh, he's batting, you know, a, a, a hundred, right? But a thousand, as we say in baseball, right? Batting a thousand. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to, by whom to swear, now there was two aspects to that. You're going to have a son, your wife is barren, you're not, you're not able to have children, but then you're going to make a nation, and then through that nation you're going to bless the world. So there's a lot of anticipation of us being heirs of the promise and having the things that God says that we all in our human hearts desire, right? Peace and justice and equity and things that are right and an eternal kingdom where everything is the way it ought to be. That is the ultimate promise that comes through Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant, but the immediate promise to, for him to have a son, which God doesn't deliver immediately. And the promise always anticipates the fact that there's going to be a wait. And when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, because he was God, right? People say, so help me God, or they swear to God. Uh, we see that as, as you know, bringing a, uh, a, a judgment on us. You know, God will get me if I don't tell the truth. That's the idea, uh, at least the basic idea, at least the old time understanding of solemnly swearing an oath. But he says here, since he can't swear to God because he is God, he says, surely I will bless you and multiply you. That's what he says. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, which is what our passage is all about, but that open window of waiting brings up the opportunity for the mockers and the scoffers to say it's not coming. But he ended up obtaining the promise, at least the first part of the promise, which was for him to have a son, a son Isaac. For people swear by someone greater than themselves, right? And in all their disputes, an oath is a final confirmation, right? They make this oath. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, and that's us, that's a great thing. We now have a promise that God has promised us that we will inherit a perfect kingdom, that we're going to be in a place where God is going to send his son to reign and rule in a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. That's where we're heading in 2 Peter chapter 3. We're heirs of that promise. Well, we should know this, the unchangeable character of his purpose. We should know that because he guaranteed it with an oath to Abraham. So that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, which is a third, because there's two things, right? There's a promise. He makes a promise and he swears an oath. And in those two things, it says, and add to that the fact that God's nature, he cannot lie. He says, we who have fled for refuge, and we have in a sinful world, a fallen world, we want it made right. We want to embrace the king, have him relieve the sin and forgive the sin in our lives. And we want to be in a sinless and, and, and perfect environment. And that's coming. And we want to have strong encouragement, even when things are bad, to hold fast to the hope, and here it is, that is set before us. And that hope that is set before us is the hope that we are supposed to hang on to, even when there's not uh, any signs of it being fulfilled here and now. There's a waiting. And this is where Christians are different than non-Christians who overlook and forget God and his faithfulness and his promise, promises, and we as Christians who don't. In the middle of all this, it is interesting, and I think sometimes we overlook this very simple word here in verse number eight. Take a look at it. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. And we didn't need to know 
that, but it is certainly a sign that this is the Christians that he's speaking to. I said, we didn't need to know that to identify who he's speaking to. He's speaking to those that are reading this letter, not the false teachers, not the scoffers. And he's speaking to those Christians who are, and here's a very important thing, beloved. They're beloved. They are the object of love. And then think, okay, well, a lot of times in the scripture, the apostle will speak about the fact that he loves those people that he's writing to. Uh, but I just think in this context, it is uh, at least contextually pointing to the fact that this is a love that is uh, the focus of God or the expression of God. God loves these people. And to think that someone's made a promise to you and he wants to make sure that you see the unchangeable nature of that promise and that he cares about you put on top of that that you're loved in Christ well then all of a sudden now you think well there's another reason I should never doubt it if someone you love makes a promise as opposed to someone that doesn't care about you makes a promise to you uh, you're gonna have even an added layer of security and assurance and so I take you to Romans chapter 8 here on the screen and I remind you of these classic words that should always encourage us when we're thinking about where's God right in all of this and is God going to make things right Look at verse 31. What shall we say to these things? And there's a lot of suffering, by the way, that underlies the context of Romans chapter 8. A lot of bad things are happening to these Christians. If God is for us, and I'm thinking, well, where is he? Right? That's the concern. Right? Well, then who can be against us? Well, he didn't spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. So I can look back in history to see the death of Christ as a reminder and an expression of God's ultimate love for his people. And then I should be able to look forward to the future and know this. Well, how will he not? with him graciously give us all things. I can look to the future with a confident assurance that God will keep his promises. Who's going to bring charge against God's elect? Is there anything, the scoffers, the false teachers, that are going to derail this kind of commitment that God makes to graciously give us all things? No, it's God who justifies. He's made us his children. He's adopted us. He's made us right before him. Who is there to condemn, right? Who is to condemn? Well, Christ Jesus is the one who's been given all judgment, but he's the one who died for us. More than that, he was raised. He's at the right hand of God. He is our advocate, right? He is the intercessor. He is indeed interceding for us. Who's going to separate us from that, from that love of Christ? Can it be tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And we encounter those things all the time throughout all of church history. And then he says, as it is written, verse 36, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's the kind of thing that all generations of Christians have experienced, including the uh, non-physical killing of our, of our theology and our ideology and our philosophy. People are attacking it every single day. But in that, it says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. We're going to win. Why? Because through him, who loved us. That's how we're going to win. God has a promise. He's going to keep it, and you can bank on it. You can count on it. And he says, I'm sure that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sticking that word beloved right in the middle of this verse is so important for us to add another layer of security on top of God's faithful promises to us. Well, let's take a look at this phrase here. We don't overlook this fact that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. Here's a God who sits outside of time, who is eternal, right? He's not bound by time. And the Bible says one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. The history of the abuse of this verse 
we could go on and on and on and on. And since I try to keep these to 15 minutes, I can't go on and on and on and on. All I can tell you is that these verses ought to put to rest any use of this passage as some kind of decoding key, some magic decoding key to figure out the timing of the Lord's return. Let me remind you of a few passages. Acts chapter 1 verse 7, Jesus says, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons, the chronos in Greek or the kairos, right? How much time it's going to take or the opportunities in which this is going to come, which the Father has fixed in his own authority. Earlier in Christ's ministry, Mark 13, 32, he says, concerning the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. And in his condescension in the incarnation, God didn't even allow Jesus, just like he didn't allow him to be not fatigued and grow weary, like Isaiah 40 says that God never grows weary. Jesus grew weary. So the limitations of his attributes in that case to be all powerful, even in his uh, physical life there in this incarnation, which he is now, he's in a powerful resurrected body. But then he didn't have that power. And here he doesn't even have this knowledge. God didn't grant it. And God didn't grant it. God the Father didn't grant it to God the Son because he didn't want us to know it. And he said, I'm not going to reveal it to you. And taking the word like day or hour and saying, well, you know, I'm just saying what week it's going to happen, you know, or I'll tell you what, you know, part of what month it's going to take place. Uh, that is a usage of an idiom and a phrase that should take us back to words like chronos and kairos, which is not trying to say, well, you won't know the second or the minute, but you're going to know the day. Or you're not going to know the day or the hour, but you're going to know the week or the month. That is not the point. The point is, it's not for you to know these things. Matter of fact, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, when people are wondering when this is all going to happen, he says, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And the thief doesn't come announcing himself. He doesn't put himself on your calendar or the scheduler, tell you it's three days until I'm going to rip you off. And that's the point here that you're not to know. Deuteronomy 29, 29 should remind us the secret things. And there are things clearly that we are not to know in these passages. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. A lot of people are making an industry in their Christianity. Many of them are false teachers trying to give you something that is not revealed. They're trying to reveal what God did not reveal, and you know it's never going to be good. So this passage right here, should remind us that whatever you do with this text, which I'm about to simply explain, is not a key for you to figure out when exactly Christ is going to come back or even that it's going to take place here in this particular time or this particular place. There is a knowledge of when Christ is going to come back uh, without getting in a bunny trail here at the end of the tribulational period. I mean, that there are days and set and months and set, and you will know that if you know when this whole covenant happens and this abomination of desolation that Jesus told us that we're to look for in the end times. I say we, the covenant people of God, and they will be the Jewish state in that period with 144,000 Jewish missionaries. But that particular time is started by or initiated by or commenced by the coming of Christ for his church, John chapter 14, verse 2. And that's going to happen without knowledge. It's going to be like a thief in the night. We're not going to know when it's going to happen. General forecast, things are going to from bad to worse, get that, but we're not going to know. So what does it mean? Well, it means this then just let's focus in on this. It works both ways, but a thousand years is one day. Now, why is that important? Because it could be a thousand years until God fulfills a promise, but it's like he made that promise yesterday. That time gets shrunk down in the picture of a God who is eternal. And that's the whole point of this, that we should be assured that God is going to keep his promise and that time does not make, a, make up a, a difference in God's mind. We're not talking about a human being who forgets what he promises. And I just want to remind you of that. God's promises. Look at these verses. Psalm 119.89. Forever, 
O Lord. Your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. If the Father has set a day in his own authority where he's going to dispatch the Lord to pick up his church, then bring the time of Jacob's trouble and then set up a kingdom. Right? If that's going to happen and God has fixed that in his eschatological timetable, guess what? It is forever firmly fixed. No one's going to change that. And the scoffer says, well, it's been a long time now. That has nothing to do with the reality of what God is going to do. Later in the passage, uh, verse 160, Psalm 119, 160, the sum of your word is truth, right? Every one of your righteous rules endures forever. And certainly his promises do too, as we saw in Hebrews chapter 6. Heaven and earth, Jesus said, will pass away. My words will not pass away. Jesus said he's coming back to take us to be with him, that where he is will be also. That's the promise of Christ. He's saying this here in this passage. His words are not going to pass away. God made a promise. Jesus made a promise. The Spirit is going to carry it out. It's going to happen. We cannot doubt it. The scoffers cannot shake our faith or our resolve that our God is faithful. So there's our study for today. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. We'll be back, Lord willing, on Monday as we near the end of this great book in 2 Peter. 